morning, church. So my name is Matt Sullivan. I've got two roles here. Uh, one, I'm the young adult associate pastor. And the second is I'm the director of recovery ministries. So if you're not familiar with that particular ministry, what it means is this. Um, I get to work with people that are struggling with drugs and alcohol every single day. We have an epidemic on our hands. People are dying from opioid overdoses every day. People are dying from alcohol-related illnesses and accidents every single day. And I get to work with these people every single day, and it has been a joy to get to do it. I say that uh, I used to be a dope dealer, and now I'm a hope dealer. And I've got to be careful with some of the language I use with my wife. You know, a few weeks ago, I called her up, and I said, hey, um, I just did something I haven't done in a very long time. She's like, what? What is going on? I said, well, I just rolled a joint. She goes, what? You rolled a joint? What are you talking about? We got to get on our hands and knees and pray. And I go, wait, wait, wait. I was playing basketball and I twisted my ankle. I, I rolled my ankle, not rolled my, ro rolled a joint. Sorry. That's the, hey, listen, that's the best it's going to get today. <laughs> this is the bottom of the barrel up here before you today. This is as good as it's going to get. <laughs> so when I was eight years old, my dad bought me a new bike. Never had a bike before. It was my first bike. Before then, it was just walking. So I have a bike. And we all know when you're a kid and you get a bike, what that means is freedom, right? Hop on that thing and go. Well, my dad gave me the bike. He gave me some rules. He said, listen, son, have fun on the bike, but only stay on these streets right around the house. Just these streets. Don't ever go down that street right over there. Any of these streets, son, not that street. If you go down that street, something could happen. Stay on these streets. I said, okay, dad, no problem. Hop on the bike, take off. I'm cruising around the neighborhood, wind through my hair, pedaling as fast as I can go, and I, I pass by that street, and I say, oh, can't go down that street. Circle the block, come back around. I see that street and I went, that street, I can't, can't go down that street. Make a block, come back around again. And I stop and I go, did he say that street? Was it, was it that street? I'm not sure. I make another loop and I come back around and I stop and I look at that street and I say, wait a second. I don't think he said that street. And that street looks fun. Maybe I'll just take a short cruise down that street. Down the street I go. Ten minutes later, I'm getting beat up. My bike's getting stolen. I'm running back home, and I'm scared to death. I am in big trouble when my dad gets home. See, every day when my dad got home, I met him at the front door, welcomed him home from work. But this day, too scared to do it, I run in the house, go in my bedroom, hide in the closet, wait for my dad to get home. And I hear him pulling in the driveway, and I hear him get to the door, and I'm not there. And I hear him saying, Matt, Matt, where are you? Matt. And I'm just trembling. Maybe he'll forget about me. And I hear him walking through the house. He makes it to the bedroom. He comes to the closet. He opens it up, and he finds me. He goes, what are you doing in here? And I went, oh, hey, I didn't know you were home. He said, why didn't you meet me at the front door? And I said, oh, uh, yeah, so anyway, I got kind of busy. And he goes, where's the bike? 
where's, where's the bike I gave you this morning? And I said, what bike? He goes, oh, you know what bike. I said, I'm not real familiar. He said, the bike that I gave you this morning that I said, stay on these streets, not this street. Did you go down that street? See, parents give us rules to protect us, to keep us from harm, to keep us from hurt, agony, pain, tragedy. They try to build these safeguards around us to keep us safe. I try to do the same thing with my boys. We have a nine-year-old and a five-year-old, six-year-old. Sutton turned six yesterday. I have a nine-year-old and a six-year-old. And we try to teach our boys the same kind of things, how, how our rules protect them. They're there to keep them safe. I'm about to tell you a story that is probably the most embarrassing dad fail I've ever had. I really can't believe I'm telling you, but it applies today. So a few years ago, Sawyer, our nine-year-old, he was probably six then, maybe five. And Kelly and I, we try to breathe biblical truths into our boy's life as often as we can. We want to build a foundation that as they grow and get older and they hear things in church or read in the Bible, they remember it from us. And we kind of set this foundation. And so Sawyer on this day has gotten in trouble. And what I usually say to Sawyer when he's in trouble is, hey, let's go for a walk. Let's go have a talk. And what that means is we're going to your room. You're getting a spank. So we go to his room. We walk in. We sit down. And I thought, you know what, in this, this time, I'm going to try to explain a little bit about who Jesus is and Jesus' sacrifice and his love for us. And I said, Sawyer, you broke this rule and there's a consequence. You know, you're going to get punished because you told you not to do this, but you did it. And I said, but Sawyer, Jesus, he loves us so much. So much so that he came to earth and he died for our sins. See, he died on the cross to save us from eternal damnation. He took our punishment. What we did, he took the punishment for. And so Sawyer, <laughs> instead of you getting the spank, you know where I'm going with this, I'm going to spank myself. <laughs> and Sawyer perks up and he looks at me. He's really excited about this new change. He says, I love you so much, son. So three spanks it is, right? And Sawyer jumps up and he hugs me and he says, Dad, I love you so much. I can't believe you would do that for me. This is incredible. I get it. I understand. And in that moment, I'm thinking, oh, oh, this was amazing. This worked. Like other parents need to know this. I need to write a book. I'm going to go on a book tour. I'm going to be on talk shows. It's going to go, I mean, it's going to go viral. It's going to be everywhere. Matt Sullivan saves parenthood, right? So three days later, Sawyer gets in trouble again. I say, Sawyer, let's go have a talk. Go to his room. He sits down. I said, son, you broke the rule. There's a consequence. He says, dad, let me interrupt you. Let me interrupt you, dad. I think this is one of those times that for me to really learn my lesson well, I think you need to spank yourself again. <laughs> again, this is as good as it's going to get, folks. <laughs> but what are we trying to do? We're trying to raise our kids in a way to show them there are dangers out there. There are things that can hurt you. Follow these rules. Stay inside these boundaries. Let these guardrails guard your life. Because if not, hurt, pain, tragedy, agony can come your way. Sin is lurking. The lion lurks. The wolf approaches. 
Sin wants to kill us. In Genesis 2, verse 15, 16, and 17, here's what it says. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Most of you know this story. You know what happens next. In Genesis 3, the serpent slithers in and he talks to Eve. In my mind, I think the serpent whispers to her. I don't think he talks. I don't think he just says, hey, did he say you really shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? I think he whispers it. I think he gets right next to Eve's ear and says, did he really say you can't eat the fruit from any tree? He just so softly whispers it. And Eve responds, no, he didn't say any tree. He said that tree in the middle of the garden. We can't eat from it. We can't even touch it. She added that part. We can't even touch it or we'll die. And what does he say? You won't die. God knows you'll be like him. So in verse 6, it says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And in that moment, the trajectory of mankind changed forever. See, in this perfect creation, right, Everything is perfect. There's no sin. There's no death. There's no decay. There's no anything but perfection. And God says to Adam, look at this beautiful place. It is perfection. You can eat from any tree. You can eat from any tree in this garden, just not that one. You can eat from any tree, Adam, just not that one. Matt, you can go on any street, just not that one. Matt, you can go on any street, just not that one. And they took the fruit from that tree and they ate it and everything changed. It says, and then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees, just like I did. I hear my dad come home and I run and I hide. There's something about sin that makes us want to hide. Shame and guilt trap us, right? Fear of consequences make us want to hide. And Adam and Eve hide from God. And in all this garden, this perfect place where sin was not supposed to be a part of it, has entered into creation. And the trajectory of, human, of, of mankind has changed. And it's with us today. Just as strongly with us today as it was then, if not more so. There are new ways created to sin every day. There are ways to sin today that there weren't here then. So a few years ago, it's a Saturday morning. It's eight o'clock and I'm sitting at a Cracker Barrel. And across the table from me is a 10th grade student. He's in my youth group. 
He says, Matt, I need to meet with you on Saturday morning. I need to talk to you about something. I, I need some help with something. I said, sure, Zach, let's go. And we meet there and we're talking. And he says, hey, I got to tell you something. My mom is an alcoholic. And you didn't know this about my mom. But she drinks every single day. She gets home from work and she hits the bottle. And she drinks till she passes out and she does it every day. And me and my younger brothers suffer. We don't have our mom with us. She doesn't take care of us. She doesn't feed us. She comes home from work and immediately hits the bottle. But something happened Thursday night. He's got a, he, he's got a younger brother that's eight and another brother that's three. He said, on Thursday night, my mom did her thing. She comes home. She drinks all evening and into the night and passes out about midnight. And his three-year-old brother walked out the front door and into the street. And he says, thank God my brother wasn't killed. He wasn't hit by a car. Thank God that a policeman found my younger brother. And he scooped him up. And the policeman walking through the neighborhood until he saw a house that maybe this kid came from. And sure enough, their front door was wide open. Light was coming out. The policeman walks in and he sees this mother passed out on the floor. And he said, Matt, they arrested my mom. She's in jail. And I don't know what's going to happen to us. You know, my dad's in Colorado. We haven't talked to him in five years. Now my mom's in jail. I don't know what's going to happen to us. And my heart is beating 10,000 miles an hour. And as I start trying to give him guidance and give him some answers, I just have one question on my mind. Just one question on my mind as I'm talking to this 10th grade student. Can he smell the liquor on my breath? Can he smell the liquor on my breath. See, I just drank the whole night before, all night long. I'm four years into a major alcoholic addiction. Four years. I'm on staff at my church. I'm a youth pastor. I'm in seminary. I'm discipling men. I'm leading groups. I'm teaching Sunday school. And I'm a raging four or five night a week, pass out, black out, drunk. And no one knows. No one. I'm hiding it so well. And it has taken me a long way away from God, my family, my friends. And I feel isolated and alone. And this kid is asking me a question that I can't even answer for myself. I'm so lost in this addiction by now. One of my earliest memories was sitting in church like you guys today. I was sitting in a pew between my mom and my dad. And I've got these hymnals stacked up about six high. If I stack them up six high and I sit on them, I can see the preacher as he preaches. And I got my arm around my dad and I got my arm around my mom and I can see the preacher preaching. And he's got this big black beard. And he's got this black hair kind of combed over. And this day he's got this maroon tie on as he's preaching the word. And I'm in heaven because I got my parents right here with me. Like some of you right now. And my dad was my best buddy. 
We were so close. We played together every single day. Chase, hide and seek, baseball. We built model airplanes together. We went hunting and fishing. He was my best, best buddy. And my dad would pick me up every single day and he would hold me and he would say, I love you so much, Matthew. I love you so, so much. You will always be my son. We will always be together and I love you. And so I'm sitting here between my parents, loving life. And church ends and we go home. And something is different this day. And I don't know quite what it is. But my mom scoops me up, scoops my brother up, throws us in the car, and she says, we're leaving. And I look at my dad and say, come on. And he goes, I can't go this time. And I go, what do you mean you can't go? You always go with us. We never don't go anywhere without you. Come to the car. He says, Matt, I can't today. And my mom starts pulling out of the driveway. And I reach out the window. My dad's on the porch. We're in the driveway. And I'm reaching and I'm screaming for my dad, come get me. Come get me. And he doesn't move. And there's tears in his eyes. And I'm crying and my brother's crying. We don't know what is going on. And we drive a ways. I don't know where we're going. We pull up to an apartment. We walk up to the door, open the door, and we walk in, and I see a familiar face. He's got a black beard. He's got this black hair combed over and a maroon tie on. It's the preacher. And my mom bends over and she says, Matt, this is your new daddy. And I go, whoa, whoa, whoa. This isn't my dad. This is the preacher of our church. No, no, no. This is your new father. I said, no, 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 no. Dad's at home. Let's go get dad. Matt, he is no longer your father. And this man is. And right there in that moment, my alcoholism was born at four years old. See, trauma, abuse, neglect, and abandonment change children, change people. They make you into something you were never meant to be. And when I'm hearing these words coming out of my mom's mouth, I'm out of here. And I take off running out of the apartment and I make it to a fence. I'm trying to get to my dad. That's all I want to do is get to my father so he can scoop me up and tell me how much he loves me. But instead, I feel a firm grip on my ankle, pulling me back underneath this fence. And he lays his hands on me. So within three minutes of having my new dad, I'm getting beat. And for the next 11 years, it was pure hell. It was trauma, abuse, neglect, and abandonment over and over and over and over. And trauma, abuse, neglect, and abandonment, what it, what it does to a child is this. It whispers to them, you're no good. No one loves you. You're worthless. No one cares for you. And when you're four, you don't know what to do with that voice, so you shove it away. And they get married. My mom left my dad. They get married. They start having children. And we practically go on the run. We move from town to town to town, church to church to church, home to home to home. And they're on the run from their past, from their mistakes, from their choices. They're hiding they're hiding, and they're taking us along with them. And the thing is, we never left church. If the doors were open, we were in church. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, VBS, revival. If the doors were open, we were there, and we were instructed to have a smile on our face, right? At church, everything's perfect. 
At home, it's pure chaos. But in church, we hide. Man, I know how to hide really, really good. For some reason, God protected me during those years, and I became a little evangelizer at school, and I'd bring kids in my second, third, fourth, fifth grade classes to church with us. I did it in junior high and did it in high school. I got saved when I was seven, rededicated at 19. I was a designated driver in high school, college in my 20s. I didn't party. I didn't drink. I didn't do anything. People knew that I didn't do those things. And when they would go and they would have too much or go too far, they knew they could call me and I'd come pick them up and take them home. In my 20s, I felt called to the ministry. I started looking at some seminaries and all those voices, you're no good, you're worthless, no one cares about you, were always playing in the back of my mind. But I just wouldn't deal with them. And I met my wife and I fell in love really quick. When we got married, and life was good for a while, and one night, we made a daiquiri. If you don't know what a daiquiri is, it's like the weeniest alcoholic drink you can have. It's like a snow cone with a microscopic teeny drop of alcohol. But for me, when that teeny tiny microscopic drop of alcohol hit my lips and my stomach and then my veins and my brain, those voices went silent. I didn't hear those voices anymore. I didn't hear that you're no good, you're worthless, no one cares for you, no one loves you. They went silent. And I was Instantly hooked, instantly hooked on alcohol. And from that moment forward, I tried to do everything that I could do so that I could drink and drink to excess, drink to a place of getting numb, of shutting everything out. And I went on the run long and hard, shutting out my wife, family, friends, everything. But during this time, we had moved. I'd gotten a job at a church. I'd opened a small business. I was on staff at this church. And I was a four or five day a week, pass out, blackout, drunk. And I'm sitting across the table from a 16-year-old kid who's looking for answers on how to deal with his alcoholic mother when me, when myself am one. And I am ashamed and I am full of shame and guilt. God can't love me. He cannot love me anymore. There is no way God could love me after all that I've done. Turning my back on him and to myself over and over and over again. And alcoholism took me a long way the wrong way. I missed my son's birthday parties. I missed Christmases. I missed family get-togethers. I missed out on so much life. And God started pulling things away from us. The church fired me. 
I lost the small business. We lost the home, the cars, the stuff. God is taking it away to try to get my attention. But guess what? I'm holding on to that bottle. I'm not ready to let go. And further we sink. I'm spending any amount of money we get on booze rather than bills. And there was a two-week period I sat in our home without electricity drinking. Told my wife to stay at her parents' house. I would stay home and take care of the house. Can't leave the house unattended without electricity. And I'm sitting on a couch alone in the dark, drinking, lost. And I'm a believer. Saved at seven, rededicated at 19. I had been in seminary. I'd been on staff. But sin was taking me so far away, I could not see up from down. I hated myself so much. And I was so full of so much shame and guilt, I couldn't tell anybody. I could not turn to my fellow church member and say, hey, by the way, uh, I got drunk last night and I do it every night. What do you think about that? I couldn't. I couldn't do that. So I kept it in. I didn't tell anybody. And I silently suffered in church with my family, with my friends. Couldn't tell anybody. You know, God doesn't set barriers between us and him. We create those barriers. Maybe some of you in here right now are, have those same barriers. Maybe there's a sin issue in your life that you don't know how to deal with. Maybe you're dealing with an addiction. Maybe it's alcoholism. Maybe it's unrepentant sin. There is something standing between you and God. Pastor Dave said it last week. When we sin, the Holy Spirit withdraws. When we sin, there's separation between us and God. And the separation between me and God was vast. And I did not know what to do with it. I was so full of selfishness, self-centeredness, anger, lying, cheating, all of it. I was a prolific sinner and I was in church every Sunday, not telling anybody. Hating myself more and more and more every day. Sinking further and further and further. About to lose my wife and my kids. She had had enough and she was about to leave me. And see, I grew up saying, I'm going to be the father that's always present and always there. My boys are going to know they're loved. They're going to know their dad wants to be with them. I'm going to be that dad because it's what I wish I would have had. And here I am becoming the very father I did not want to be, that I promised myself that I wouldn't be. And I was heading in a direction of just death. That's what addiction does. Kills people. This year alone, I lost six friends to drugs and alcohol. Six close friends just this year in a four-month span. In four months, I lost six friends. And that's where I was headed. But, 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 but. It's a big but. Jesus. He loves us so, so much. He is full of so much mercy and grace and forgiveness and kindness. No matter how far we go, his love for us never changes, never shrinks. It's always there. We learn in Luke 15, the parable of the lost sheep. 
Verse four, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? See, the thing about sheep is this. They're not fast. They're not strong. They can't defend themselves. Once they stray away, they don't come back. They don't know how to get back to the flock. They don't know how to get back to the shepherd. Once the sheep leaves the flock, they're in trouble. Immediately they're in trouble, right? They leave the flock. They can't protect themselves. A hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? See, I don't think when that sheep left, he was in a beautiful green pasture basking in the sun, enjoying where he was, kicking his hooves up in the air, loving life. No, that sheep quickly found some muck and mire and a mud hole and a pit and he got stuck and he couldn't get out. And the briars and the branches were piling on top of him, holding him in this pit. And see, the good shepherd, here's what I think happens. He's going one, two, three, four, five, six, 10, 20, 40, 70, 80, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99. Wait a second. 95, 96, 97, 98, 99. Wait, 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 I had a hundred. Where is Samuel? Where is Samuel? Where is my beloved? Where did he go? I've got 99, he is not here. And Jesus immediately takes off. See, he knows us by name. He knows each one of us by name. And he knows when we go astray and he knows immediately my sheep will be in danger because the lion approaches, the wolf lurks. And Jesus takes off and he crosses that mountainside. He crosses that pasture. He fights through the wilderness, the brush. He fights through everything until he sees his beloved in that pit. And he runs over and he grabs him and he pulls back the branches and the briars and the shame and the guilt and the addiction and the sin. He pulls it all away and scoops him up and whispers in his ear, I love you. I love you so much. And he rejoices when he finds that one sheep. And he takes him back to the flock. In the same chapter of Luke, the parable of the lost son. So this son goes to his father and he says, I want all my stuff, I'm out of here. In short, that's what he says, dad, I'm ready to go, give me my inheritance, I'm gonna go do my thing. And the son leaves and he squanders everything he has on wild living and he's destitute, he is losing everything and he's about to starve to death. And he thinks, if I just return to my dad and I'll tell him, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I don't deserve to be called your son. I'll just work for you, dad. And I think that dad, as, he is, as he's home and he watches his son leave, he doesn't know if he's ever going to see his son again. He doesn't know what's going to happen to his son. And whatever time, whatever time it is, 
however long it takes, I think that dad is sitting there on the front porch, right, like looking out over his land, looking at, at, at all of his sheep, cows, whatever he has, his pastures, his people working. And as he's sitting there, down the road, he sees something that looks familiar. It says here in 20, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. I think as that dad is sitting there, he looks out and he goes, wait a second. Is it, is it? It's my son. And what does he say he does? He runs to him. 1 John 1.9 is one of the most powerful verses in all of scripture. See, I was lost in the addiction of alcohol. Lost in it. About to die, about to lose everything. And God started stripping things out of our life to get my attention. And it says here, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I'm telling you right now, he is the God of reconciliation, the God of restoration, the God of redemption. When we turn and we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us and to pull us back into his family. See, in that confession, what happens is this. We become transparent. When we get transparent with God, we are immediately transported into freedom. I got sober six years ago. And when I got sober, I thought God was done with me with ministry. And God laid a passion on my heart to go back to a church and try to work with people that are suffering with drugs and alcohol. That's why I said I'm a hope dealer. It is incredible to watch husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, sons and daughters get sober and get restored to Jesus, and get restored to their family, and get restored to their kids. And all Jesus says is this, come, come to me, come to me, come to the foot of the cross where my arms are wide open, ready to forgive, and ready to, ready to bind up your wounds. One of my most favorite aspects of Jesus Christ is his redemptive nature. And now he reaches down into the pit. He reaches down into the muck and the mire and he pulls us out and he puts us on firm ground and he gives us a new chance, a second chance, a new life. I would say this, if there's anybody in here that's struggling with an addiction, My name and number is plastered on our website. I get phone calls. Every, I got a call this morning at 6.45 from an alcoholic. I get calls all the time from people wanting help. If there's anyone in this room that's battling an addiction and no one knows and you're suffering in silence, I'd love to talk with you. I'll be happy to help. I'll be happy to help you break those chains step out of that prison 
and into a new life with Christ. I'm going to close this in prayer. And I just hope that as we pray, that if you know of somebody, maybe it's a friend or a coworker, maybe it's a family member, someone that is suffering with addiction, someone that's suffering in a sin issue, that you think about them and pray about them, that someone speaks into their life and draws them out. Bow with me, please. Father, we just come before you today and we just thank you for all that you are. You're the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the creator of all things. Everything was made by you and for you and through you. And we love you, Jesus. We thank you for all the graces and mercies and kindness that you show us in spite of who we are, in spite of our filthy rags, you love us abundantly. Your love for us never changes. It never withdraws. It never shrinks. It's always front and center. You just tell us to turn, turn from it and turn to you. And you forgive us of all of our sins, all of our iniquities. You heal us of our wounds. You draw us into your arms, Lord. Help us to shed shame, guilt. Help us to, sh to shed the things that stand between us and you, Father. Help us to run to you, to those open arms of forgiveness and loving kindness. We love you, Jesus. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.